1: Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of the New Book Network's Digital Humanities Series. I'm Joe Taylor, I'm a Presidential Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Manchester, but this week I am delighted to be joined by two former colleagues from Lancaster University's Digital Humanities Hub. Ian Gregory, who's a geographer by training and is now a Professor of Digital Humanities and Co-Director of the DH Hub at Lancaster and Dr. Laura Patterson, who is Senior Lecturer in English Language and Applied Linguistics and Academic Lead for Applied Linguistics at The Open University. These very different backgrounds are um, harmonised in the book that we're talking about today, Representation of Poverty in Place, Using Geographical Text Analysis to Understand Discourse, and that came out with Paul Grove Macmillan in 2019. Hello, both. Hello. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Um, so. I'm very excited to get to quiz you about this, um, this book today. I think it would be really helpful, though, if we started off with both of you just summarising what your different academic backgrounds were and how you came to be working together. Um, Ian, do you want to start?
0: Yeah, so um, I um, kind of drifted into digital humanities almost by mistake, actually. I'd been working with historical census data for a good few years. Uh, using GIS with that Um, and over time became more interesting how you could use qualitative and textual sources within GIS as well Um, so we got a project a while back that was looking at how we could do that by extracting place names out of the text and mapping uh, mapping them from there and I guess that's where all of this started.
1: Is that nearly 10 years ago now?
0: Yeah I guess it must be getting on that log yeah.
1: (laughs) Goodness me.
0: It started with the Mapping the Lakes project, actually, with David Cooper, uh, that Sally Bushell kind of gave a push to as well. That was just looking at two little texts of Lake District literature and what we could do with that. And a lot, an awful lot snowballed from that.
1: It's amazing how um, from tiny acorns, mighty oaks can grow. Laura, when did you get involved?
2: Not that long ago, not 10 years ago. Um, but I, I think I benefited from the snowball. So uh, I went to Lancaster, I think it's 2004. 14 or 15, um, and I stayed there till 17 when we would just wrap this project up. But um, so I'm a corpus based discourse analyst, which means that I look for patterns in language across large data sets and then relate them back to their wider social context. So I've worked primarily on discourses around poverty, welfare, and benefits receipt. And so I just seemed to fit with this project looking at at poverty in the UK. So it was a kind of a a happy event that
1: there just happened to be a job going at the time. Yeah, it's funny the way that works, isn't it? Luck and judgment
0: are often. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, more directly where this came from was uh, Tony McHenry had, was looking to set up a centre to look at um, uh, the use of corpus linguistics in the social sciences particularly, and he spoke to me about whether there was anything we could do with the kind of geographical approaches, and poverty just seemed to fit what he was looking for at that stage. So he put something into what became uh, the Centre for Corpus Approaches to Social Science uh, about having a a section on geographies of poverty. And fortunately for us, Flora got the job and the rest just rolled naturally from there.
1: How did it work kind of meshing those different expertises together? It must've been in some ways quite challenging working out how to write together.
2: Um, no, I think it worked quite well. I think one of the great things about this particular project is that we each trusted each other to know what we were talking about when it came to our own areas of expertise. So, so we kind of played off that, and because we were working interdisciplinary, if one of us didn't know something. Asking the other would be exactly what you know. Somebody
1: who's interdisciplinary coming to this book would, would want to know. So it did quote quite well. Yeah, I think that that kind of trust and um, and generosity, I suppose, um, must with with each other and with your readership must be really key for putting together this this kind of. I mean, really interdisciplinary work. It covers what, about three or four different disciplines.
0: I think in some ways, being so interdisciplinary makes it help actually helps it to a certain extent, because it's so obvious who has the expertise to deal with the different aspects of it, that there's very little room for conflict in terms of the kind of, no, I'll do that bit, no, I'll do that bit kind of thing. Um, Laura understands the poverty, corpus discourse end of things, I understand the geography sort end of things, and uh, therefore it's very obvious who should be doing which bit.
1: So Laura, am I right that you'd worked on poverty or questions to do with poverty before?
2: Yeah so I'd done some work on um, responses to Benefit Street so audience responses to remember the television program Benefit Street? Vividly. Vividly okay Um, so we'd done (laughs) when I was at Sheffield Hallam we'd done some focus groups and then we then moved to Twitter to kind of get the corpus element involved so that's kind of what I pitched when I came to to get this job so that was that was why it sort of worked with the the overarching aims of uh this part of CAS was branded as discourses of distressed communities so it seemed like a, a logical way to take it um, CAS remind me that's the sorry for... purpose approaches to social science
1: that's the one um so you've kind of started to answer this question I guess um then but what would you say were the really kind of big or core questions that you were hoping to answer with this book
0: From my point of view, I suppose there were two. The first one was a kind of um, of proof-of-concept methodology question, which was, given we had a large corpus of newspaper material and we'd developed these techniques for geoparsing and geographical text analysis and that kind of thing, could we actually use them to apply them to to answer a substantive research question, proper research questions, rather than just... um, Doing data-led methods-led work, could we really get in, get our teeth into a substantial and important topic? So that was one of them, and then obviously the, the the top the topic from there was was around poverty and the way poverty was represented in newspapers, and particularly the ge- geographical aspects of that.
2: Laurie, what what about? Yeah, from I, I your agree. Perspective? I agree entirely. I think it, for me, I wanted to see what realities of poverty. The two newspapers threw up, so we we looked at the Guardian and the Daily Mail. We knew they were going to be different, but I wanted to sort of see how they were different and what role place played in making them different.
1: So yeah. So um, again, you kind of started to answer this um, already. So you used the Guardian and the Daily Mail. But what were the? How did you source those? And what other kinds of data and sources did you use for this?
2: So uh, we drew on two multi multi million word corpora of the Guardian and the Daily Mail. Um, everything in their news sections from 2010 to 2015. And that was scraped uh, from their website. So thank you to Andrew Hardy at Lancaster for that. And um, we chose these two <laughs> because they were the two biggest national newspapers in the UK. And at the time, I'm pretty sure they were the two most popular newspaper websites that were free to use. So they were being accessed right. you know, Like by millions of people a day. So that was our textual data. But we also... Then compared um, our newspaper data with other established methods of measuring poverty, so other quantitative data like unemployment, worklessness statistics, and we also use uh, caste scores as well. Again, to try and map up these different realities and see what converged and what diverged.
1: How did you bring? To- How did you start going about bringing together such a huge range of sources and sources that are so kind of different in um, character as well? What's the kind of, what's the sort of day one method, I suppose?
0: I suppose part of it was simply, part of the joy of these techniques and what's great about these techniques is the way they can integrate so many things together. And we live increasingly in a world where we have access to vast amounts of, uh, of data, be it textual or quantitative. Uh, so just trying to think through, well, what could we, poverty is obviously a very widely ranging topic just trying to think through what sources are available what could we use what use could we put to it was uh was the part of what really attracted me to this at the start and newspapers are things we've been working on previously but newspapers on this scale for a modern topic was something that was really interesting and i've certainly spent a number of years working with before i got into all this stuff uh spent a number of years working (laughs) with quantitative data on things like poverty and so on so it's fairly second nature to go after some of that as well
1: can we just pause for a moment and spend a spend a moment defining what poverty is in this book what what do you kind of mean by it what do, what does it include
2: i think the short answer to that question is that we never define poverty um and, well in the first chapter <laughs> so it's both a very short and a very long answer <laughs> well in the first chapter um of the book, we kind of we set out other people's different definitions of poverty and we talk through the types of data sources that people use. So economists might use GDP data, historians might look at workhouse records, but we took the stance that poverty means more to people than just economic hardship. And just using different quantitative data sets to calculate who is and who isn't in poverty kind of misses out, or at least backgrounds the lived experiences of what it's like to be in poverty. So we wanted to really let our data set sort of speak for itself. And by conducting our analysis in the way that we did, we found the core themes that are being presented as associated with UK poverty, benefits, housing, money, employment, as well as some kind of smaller subfields like food banks and single parenthood. Um, But we do we focus on the kind of the big four uh, in the book, but we don't say definitively this is what UK poverty is because we're aware that every every data set tells a different story.
1: I think one of the things that's so kind of um, fascinating about this book, for me anyway, as somebody who doesn't read that much kind of quantitative-based stuff, is the way that you've kind of melded together those kinds of sources with the qualitative stuff and... um, made the I think it makes the the kind of quantitative findings more emotive somehow more meaningful it's there's moments particularly in the later chapters that we'll come back to shortly where some of the stories begin to be really quite moving um was it was one of the the things that you were trying to do I guess to balance that kind of bigger picture with a more personal or more individualized um, overview of what poverty might be like to to live through as well as be seen from a distance
2: that's a great question well,
0: from a ge- geographical oh, thank point you. of view <laughs> sorry
2: yeah. no go on go ahead in
0: uh from a geographical point of view it's always interesting to try and drill down from the big picture kind of national level type stuff to the much more local stories that you can pull out but the other thing that came across in both newspapers is the way that particularly the Daily Mail maybe, but both of them do this, is the way that they try to also uh, pick up on how the aggregate experience of poverty uh, plays out at individual levels and how uh, individuals are either affected by it or uh, can escape from it or whatever it might be.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we come on to those later chapters, I, I think it would be really helpful to spend a moment just Um, hearing a little bit more about the methods so I guess there's two main um, methodological approaches you you use in this book right critical discourse analysis and geographical text analysis can we start with discourse analysis what what is it what does what does it mean to undertake a discourse analysis
2: Laura I think this is definitely one for you (laughs) no make Ian answer that one let's see what he says (laughs) (laughs) You'd have to take GTA. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that. That's fine. All right. <laughs> um, so what what we did in uh, the second couple of chap- chapters in the book is that w- we were aware that when we were writing this book, we were targeting an interdisciplinary audience. So we made sure that we included a chapter that sets up the basics of corpus linguistics and critical discourse analysis, which is basically the the corpus stuff is in this particular case the how we manipulated the data, how we got from you know millions of words to just a few hits, just a few being about half a million in this case, but uh, you know, I, sure. I, I kind of got it down to that, that final data set. But then the discourse analysis comes in when you start seeing the, the, the high level trends in the corpus data and then drilling down and going to look in more detail at the particular examples and spotting patterns across kind of longer pieces of text. So whole articles or things like that and kind of drawing those things together. Um,
1: thank you. Um, and GCA, Ian?
0: So geographical text analysis is something we've been developing at Lancaster for a few years now um, as a way of trying to both quantitatively and qualitatively analyse geographies in text, I suppose. Um, at its simplest level, it's just about, uh, first of all, extracting the place names out of, out of the text automatically using natural language processing techniques. And once you've established where which places the text is talking about, it's then also what it's saying about those places by simply using uh, what words are occurring in the text near to the place name. So you can then uh, identify particular places and particular themes uh, and ask, I suppose, basic questions like what is, where is the text talking about and what is it saying about those places, or perhaps what theme is the text talking about and which places is it associating with those places.
1: How does it deal with um, place names that apply to more than one location, like somewhere like um, Newcastle, selfish example there?
0: Um, well, that's where um, that's where what in some ways could be a very neat technology gets messy because place names are not easy things to deal with. They're very difficult to disambiguate. They're not just two different places with the same names, but... Um, disambiguating people's surnames from place names isn't always easy and so on. So although in theory it sounds like a good idea that you can just geopiles a text and identify all the place names and then map them by linking it out to a gazetteer and it'll all be right. In practice, it takes quite a lot of... um, quite a lot of work to tidy up the the text and learn from mistakes that the geoparsing process is making and so on but we've got better at that over the years and we've got processes in place that allow you to do that in a reasonably effective semi-automated way.
1: I think that's a really important point actually about works like this that um, what on the page might begin to seem like fairly straightforward processes um, might have taken years to, um, to hone. There's a lot of hidden work, um, I guess, in studies like this. Um, I wanted to ask what how combining those two approaches extended previous studies, um, both on poverty and I guess also in terms of both critical discourse analysis and um, GTA approaches. I think so I guess.
2: Yeah, I think our method kind of directly addresses that enduring false dichotomy between qualitative and quantitative data. So we make the point that language isn't always qualitative data and even statistics need interpretation to make them mean anything. So numbers on a page are useless without some kind of explanation. Um, so that's kind of the take. Well, well, one of the takeaways for me. It wasn't always easy, but we got there in the end.
1: Yeah I was going to ask what were what were the challenges of of pulling together those two like, massive um, methodologies? Yeah I think the geopods are not
2: always behaving was was my number one <laughs> kind of thing that made me cry quite a lot during this project. Um, you know it just made some, some silly <laughs> mistakes so it's it was a fairly new piece of technology so it, it and we've got to remember we're dealing with a computer. It doesn't know what place is. So our geoparser tried to find um coordinates for fictional places. Things like Hundred Acre Wood where Winnie the Pooh lives. Okay, <laughs> that's not really relevant to I mean, you know, Downton Abbey was another entirely one. entirely factual location as far as
1: I'm concerned. But yes, I take <laughs> your point.
2: <laughs> um and I think we also had to make sure that we had kind of a we had to make sure it was about place. We had to make sure it was tied to poverty. So We needed to take into account the fact that, okay, one of our queries was work, but you can work up a sweat. That's got nothing to do with poverty. You know, you don't always employ people. You can employ common sense. So they needed to be, you know, all the hits that the GeoParser spat out needed to be manually analysed and it took forever. But on the positive side, it gave us a great overview of the data, which is quite unusual for a
1: a big corpus study to be that involved with, with each individual hit that you get. If this I'm not sure if this is an unfair question, I'm sorry if it is, but I was just kind of wondering as you were talking there whether or not there were any moments where there was a tension between what the critical discourse analysis was suggesting and what the um, kind of inferences from the GTA might um, produce. Was there any moment where they, they seemed to be in conflict? Not 100% sure what you mean there. I guess anywhere where the... Um, where the two methodologies pointed to very different results um, where you might have to um, to mediate I guess between the two
2: I think because they were always done in, in kind of collaboration it wasn't that we did a discourse analysis and we did a corpus linguistics analysis and we did GTA we kind of we pulled everything together so it was it was more of an iterative process than that they were never really held in conflict and I think that was kind of the point
1: yeah um yeah I think that's that's a good answer to a bad question (laughs) um so how do you what's the process by which you um ascertain whether or not a concept or a word is associated with a place
0: that's really very straight well at a basic level it's very straightforward um From a methodological point of view, you tell the computer that if it lies within a certain threshold, like 10 words or something like that, then uh, it assumes that they're associated with each other. And if it's further than that, then it assumes they're not. Uh, From there, though, it becomes, if you want to tidy it up, significantly more work because you just have to work through um, uh, manually and get rid of the ones that don't fit your definition.
1: So, um, so that's where a term like, for example, work or poverty is within a certain bandwidth of a place name. Exactly.
0: Um, yeah.
1: Did you did you go with was it place name collocate or place name co- um, co-occurrence in place name this co-occurrence?
0: co-occurrence. Yeah. I used to call it collocate, but Laura corrected me on that. It's actually co-occurrence.
2: What's the difference? So a oh. collocate is um, a word that occurs in a in a statistically measurable relationship to another word. So when we looked at our wider search terms, we found the collocates of poverty in each newspaper by finding those words that were more likely to occur within ten words either side of poverty than they were to kind of occur in different relationships. So for example, you might find that. Um, child was particularly likely to occur next to poverty because you get child poverty, that kind of thing. Um, right. For co-occurrence, the we we d- didn't measure any kind of statistical relationship between a place name and poverty. You know, we, we found, or any of our search terms, it wasn't about the statistical likelihood of the two words occurring together. It was about what happened when those, you know, when that search term and that place name occurred in discourse. So we weren't making robust claims about, you know, when when you see the word poverty, it's this likely that you'll then see the word Liverpool. We we weren't doing that kind of analysis. We were saying, okay, when Liverpool co-occurs with the word poverty, what's happening in the text?
1: Right, Um, that's really clear, thank you. Um, So for for most of the book, from kind of chapter four-ish onwards, your main concern, I guess, is to demonstrate the geographical um, spread or geographical relationship of certain terms across the mail and the guardian. Um, So, and you start off with poverty as quite a, a broad concept, as you've mentioned. What, how, so how is poverty represented in the mail and the guardian? Is there any, are there particular locations that each newspaper associate with it, particular concepts that they associate with it?
0: Well, I suppose the basic thing is both of them are very London-centric, the Guardian more than the uh, the Daily Mail, but they're both very London-centric in their representation. They also probably tend to overstress cities in particular uh, and tend to overlook various either um, smaller places or uh, areas of rural poverty and that kind of thing. Um some of the smaller but quite deprived areas are also tend to be overlooked. So they both seem to generally have this kind of impression of where is poverty and concentrate where is impoverished, where where suffers from poverty and very much concentrates on those ones that they've identified and tend to ignore quite a lot of other places.
1: Is that the same with um with other sources of data, there, like things like policy documents and stuff, that it tends to be more focused on urban centres and um, overlooks less obvious places.
0: And that would be very interesting to find out. And then beyond that, there's even questions of whether decision makers using those sorts of documents then tend to emphasize the particular areas they're most concerned with, which gets you into debates about whether things like COVID being prevalent in London tends to lead to quicker and more effective responses than it does in other parts of the country.
1: That's really interesting, yeah. Um, off you pop then. <laughs> um, Laura, did, was there anything about the, the way that the two newspapers geographically treated poverty that, that surprised you? Especially, I guess, as somebody who'd worked on similar topics before.
2: Um, I think one thing that stood out was the yeah the absence of rural poverty was quite surprising, but the, the fact that The Guardian didn't talk very much about Manchester, Given that that's where its that roots are, that surprised
1: me. Mm. Yeah, this is one of the things that I I kind of highlighted when I was reading the book that that the Guardian is also really London centric. Given you know that it, it's only moved to London what in about the last fifty years.
2: Yeah, it has very what, little what to say about that? the north. Very little to say about the north, and in fact, both newspapers um, had very little. They were very England centric as well. Even when you took London out of the equation you know, there wasn't much coverage in in Northern Ireland or Wales or Scotland, it was very much England, London, massive cities like Birmingham, Liverpool, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think one thing that stood out as well was um, particular places got picked on. Picked on is not an academic term, but, um, you know, Tower Hamlets got a lot of coverage while surrounding areas like Hackney, Newham, Dagenham, which, you know, on some scales may seem similar, didn't get You know much coverage and so we start to think about why is it these places you know why are they being kind of held up as particular examples when other places aren't what what
1: was it in the end that um can you can you remember any examples of of what it was I wonder if it would be things like if a major like crime had taken place um in in one of those locations or something like that
2: um we had some coverage of of Tottenham for um, for riots, but that was right. but you, you couldn't apply that sort of explanation to to every single place that we, we talked about. So mm-hmm. you know Burnley and Aberdeen came up because they were both associated with a particular scheme for reassessing benefits. All right, okay. you know you get individual examples like that, but it, it's not the case that for you know coverage of one place was homogeneous. So for example, in Birmingham, it wasn't just about redundancies or you know there were things Mm -hmm. like campaigns for equal pay and and so on and so forth so it wasn't that every area was a single issue area but it was interesting when you get these smaller places kind of almost like little kind of pinpoints on the map and this this is the type of poverty that occurs there It, it didn't always work but it was interesting when it did happen
1: how a kind of follow-on question I guess really how how do you deal with that kind of um heterogeneity that kind of those differences in terms um so the fact that articles that might be relevant to your argument might not use the specific terms that you're looking for how do Uh, you kind of get around that
2: so what we did was we in uh In our first chapter, when we demonstrate the method, we looked at just the word poverty. But obviously, you Mm -hmm. know, that's not what poverty is. You know, um, you can talk about poverty without ever saying the word. You can allude to it by talking about food banks or it's implied when talking about homelessness. So we come back to collocations. In order to get to discourses of poverty, not just the word poverty, we found the top 100 words uh, most likely to occur near poverty in each newspaper. We mushed those lists together, cleaned them up a little bit, and I think that left us with 64 search terms overall. So the analysis in the kind of the second half of the book is on kind of poverty discourse rather than just you know what is poverty full stop.
1: I, that is um, an lovely segue into um, what I wanted to ask you about next. I found some of the um, well, I think e- each chapter has um, a kind of each of the rest of the chapters has a sort of fascinating central core around um, different kind of um, ideas or concepts associated with property in the newspapers, um, and the book is is I think really fascinating in the way that it indicates connections between. Um, poverty and issues like um, employment or benefits with other sorts of political hot potatoes like immigration or debates around universal credit Um, so I guess can you can you first of all start by telling us what you found in terms of the relationship between geography poverty and unemployment in the two papers maybe one for Ian this time
0: Geography, poverty, and unemployment. Um, did we look at that directly? Uh, not convinced we did as such. I mean, what we tried to look at was, um, and this kind of follows on from what Laura was saying, that poverty as a whole, all of the different search terms, and then within that, how the different words that are related to poverty get used vary from those aggregate patterns. I think what you find in the different newspapers is they've got the different slants on what poverty is and what it means to their readership. And that then plays out in the results that you get. So the Guardian's very concentrated on uh, public sector workers and so on, I think tends to emphasise poverty in terms of of benefit cuts and high housing costs and that sort of thing. Whereas the Daily Mail's got both concerns about things like child poverty, but also likes to tell stories about people being able to raise themselves out of poverty, Um, through their own hard work or at the same time kind of um, people falling into poverty out of uh, usually their own reckless behaviours tends to be the emphasis that they're taking on it. So you get these quite different stories depending on their editorial take.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting section on the newspaper's um, understandings of that the whole kind of work-shy narrative um, was a section that I particularly enjoyed um can you are you can you um say a little bit more about that laura the um the ways that the different newspapers treat narratives around um employment and people's attitudes towards it i suppose
2: yeah i mean to to kind of pull back as well on on what you said earlier about about political hot potatoes so we found that there were links made to other social issues to do with employment and and immigration and universal credit but these weren't necessarily surprising, because if you read a copy mm-hmm. of the Daily Mail, that's such a core central uh, message that it's going to come up in almost everything. Um, where they kind of differed in terms of employment is, as Ian was saying, they picked on different types. So The Guardian was very much public sector. The Daily Mail was very much private sector. Um, it was the Daily Mail, believe it or not, that had things like Workshy. Um, I, I, I know um, in fact, it actually listed and I quote the top 20 work shy areas. So um, places like Birmingham, Glasgow and Liverpool were the top three. And it contrasted, you know, again, this is just one version of reality. It, um, it contrasted those places um, with places where work was available. So there was a claim that Aberdeen is the best place to go if you want a job in construction. But of course, there's no real consideration of place there. If you live in Birmingham or even Glasgow, you're not going to be able to commute to Aberdeen to find work, even if you are you know, qualified in construction. Um, it also labeled different places as jobless ghettos and benefits black spot areas. And you have to question the wider implications of that. So. What does such sure. labels mean for the future of a place? Would people looking for work or someone wanting to start a new company um, and kind of find employees move to a benefits black spot? Probably not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think both of us grew up in locations where um, those kinds of narratives were quite prevalent. Were you Burnley? Yep. <laughs> And I was stoked, which I mean, like living in places like that, you see kind of on the ground, the implications that narratives like that can have for an area. Is that one of the things I mean, sidebar, is that one of the things that that kind of drew you to studying poverty in the first place? Oh, do you know what? I, I don't know. I've
2: never actually sat and reflected on it, <laughs> you know, is where I came from, why I've ended up here. That's 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 a glass I love a biographical Friday reading. Friday
1: yeah <laughs> yeah I love a biographical reading of, um, of people's research interests <laughs> um moving on to less biographical less personal questions um so chapter seven um explores questions around benefits and um and housing is Birmingham somewhere that featured quite strongly there you mentioned Benefit Street earlier
2: Benefit Street didn't come up as much as perhaps I would have thought it did. Um, again, right. this, this could be, mm, it, I mean, it fell within the, the data set, but not, not so much actually. No, is a short answer to that one.
1: <laughs> so, where, where is a hot spot for, and a cold spot, I guess, for um, questions around benefits and housing problems?
0: with housing its de- with housing benefits is definitely london i think there's a really nice take on the different editorial stances of the two papers out of that because one of the uh, extra words that were associated with housing with uh, housing and benefit in the guardian tended to be one bedroom whereas in the daily mail it was eight bedroom and when you got into right. it the problem there yeah, the problem in the guardian kept identifying was benefit cuts meaning that public sector workers in particular could only afford a one-bedroom flat in London or couldn't even afford a one-bedroom flat in London, whereas the Daily Mail's stance on it was to do with asylum seekers having eight-bedroom houses in London at the taxpayer's expense and wanting even bigger houses than that, which I think rather neatly captures the very different approaches the two papers take to that topic.
1: How do, those, how do each newpa- newspaper or does each newspaper have a different relationship in itself with quantitative data? So like, do they, how do they each use quantitative data to back up the, the claims they're making, the narratives that they're spinning?
2: So the Daily Mail was more likely to quantify things, not necessarily to refer to particular statistics and cite its sources, but it was more likely to say things like, you know, X percent of people receive benefits in this location or um, there are this many uh, job vacancies available in this area, that kind of thing. Um, And then, as Ian was saying, you know, they, they would focus on individual benefits recipients that received large amounts of money. So we had one example where it was a family receiving a thousand pounds a year in benefits, um, or people using benefits to pay the rent on million pound houses in Westminster. Now, these were all legitimate claims. Yeah, Yeah, they're all legitimate claims. um, But there's a kind of and underneath that, there's a, a, an implied sense of criminality, deceitfulness, perhaps even immorality in terms of how these stories were covered. So, you know, they might come with images of the furniture that these people owned or they might be uh, their single parent status might be foregrounded or the number of children that they had was emphasised. But there's no real acknowledgement that someone with eight children who received benefits for an expensive house in London, is actually the exception not the rule if everybody receiving benefits had these amounts the whole system
1: would have just collapsed years ago well also anyone with eight children living in one bedroom would yes this <laughs> be was a yeah, awful yeah this situation was a,
2: wasn't a one-bed house that was a million pounds but yeah yeah
1: so what are the the kind of What do the kind of geographies of poverty in those two corpora indicate about the newspaper's own, like beliefs? Are they are these building on or contributing to existing kind of cultural geographies in any way?
0: Um, I suppose what surprised me about it, to go back to something I said earlier, was just how London-centric both of them are. Um, I mean, both the London-centric generally. But they're also very London-centric when it comes, even more London-centric as a general rule, when it comes to poverty. And I suppose that maybe shouldn't have come as a surprise, but uh, how obvious it was when you mapped it in this way uh, came as a bit of a surprise.
1: So are you able to kind of say definitively from this, where are the most poverty-stricken places in the UK?
0: No, and that's not what we were trying to get to. I suppose what we were trying to get to is what pla- what no. places in the I, UK I mean, I don't being... think we
2: can answer that other than <laughs> to say it depe- Yeah. Uh, yeah. It depends on your definition of poverty. The media says poverty is in London, but the, you know, the newspapers miss out on reporting rural poverty for which there's robust statistical evidence. So again, the biggest takeaway for me was that any data set is only going to give you a partial reality. Perhaps, you know, you can't get the really big numbers and headline statistics for urban uh, for rural poverty perhaps it's because of our stereotypes yeah, sure. about what you know country dwellers and city dwellers are like um mm-hmm. i'm not sure there's there's, more, there's plenty more to be done on this topic
1: so what what would you say the kind of your your individual key takeaways are from this like what what are the main things that we that we sort of learn from all of this
0: i suppose from my point of view the first thing you learn is that uh gta is a technique that is useful and can be applied to very large corpora to to answer um quite difficult uh research questions and explore difficult and complex topics and the other i suppose is again i don't want to get too far into poverty necessarily but just the way that uh complexity in both geography and in the way something is represented going back to the multiple search terms that we had to use to look at poverty uh, and the differences between them Uh, both paints an overall picture but also is something that you can get into the detail of uh, and tells you different stories about different places
1: and laura how, how do you feel about this
2: i think um i learned that linguists don't think about place enough And even when we do, it tends to be in kind of in terms of a high level conceptual space. So we might talk about American English, for example, but what do we really mean by that? So what this Mm. study showed me is that, okay, we know these two newspapers are different. We know how they um, support their own ideological positions. But what we showed was that they do this partly through the places that they choose to write about. So, especially for critical discourse analysts, we need to factor place into our analyses much
1: more systematically. Oh, that was a good answer. How would you both like to see this sort of work being used and developed? And I guess I mean here both both in academia, but also outside of it.
0: I suppose it's a basic level, just applying it to a wider range of topics, because whenever you look at text, um, the human brain is not good at trying to perceive the geographies that the text is talking about so the findings like the news even as basic as the newspapers are london centric um you could surmise that but what we can do from here is prove it and get into much more detail on it and you could do that with any sources or any topics that you're interested in using the kind of methods we've developed
1: um and last question what are you both working on now and what what's kind of next for you both
0: you go first Laura
2: um so um I'm working on a few things outside of geographical text analysis at the moment uh but still to do with UK poverty and poverty elsewhere as well so I'd love to get you know get the frontline story of what do you know what do people in poverty how do they represent their own experience because i'm aware that a lot of the stuff that i've done thus far has been very media-led or very response to media-led and actually i think we're missing a trick um by not collecting that raw data from people who are actually going through poverty especially now when we know that there's going to be you know redundancies and things coming up in the future because of the impacts of you know the the pandemic that shall not be named
1: (laughs) yeah indeed (laughs) um ian how about you
0: um i suppose i'm trying to move these methods on a bit because the the big weakness with geographical text analysis that's currently configured is it's entirely based around place name so if it's a a named place that you can find a location for then it's geographical but if it isn't then it's not geographical and that's quite a serious shortcoming because lots of references to geography are not references to place names particularly Uh, so we're trying to work up ways of handling those kinds of fuzzier, more qualitative uh, references to place uh, and incorporate that within these kinds of analyses.
1: I should very much look forward to um, seeing and reading what comes next from both of you. Um, thank you both for talking to me today. It was a delight hearing more about um, about this study and um, and the kind of questions and inspirations that went into it. And thank you both for dealing so heroically with my dog waking up from her nap time. Um, but And thank you everybody for, um, for listening. We'll be back with you in the next few weeks with another episode, but bye for now.